0: About the Bible. So we're in 2 Timothy. Um, we've been in it for a little while. We're uh, going to look at 2 Timothy 3 uh, 14 through 17 today. You can turn there. It'll be on the screens here in just a second. I don't know. Just as we were worshiping this, maybe for nobody, but as we were worshiping, I was just thinking about as we talk about the Bible, I, I want to do it. I, w- I just want to be honest and upfront and say I want to do it in such a way that if you've been hurt by the Bible, if somebody's used the Bible in, in a negative way, uh, if a teacher has used the Bible in a negative way to kind of make you feel bad, I hope today just kind of gives you a, hey, you don't have to give up on the Bible, right? You don't have to give up on it because of that. That is not, it, it, that's not at all its intended purpose, and I, I hope you'll see that. So why don't we stand together and let's read this passage together. So let's let's just go ahead and read it out loud for kicks, not for kicks. This is good stuff. All right, here we go. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. You can have a seat. All right, so this is Paul writing to Timothy, right? That's the first thing. And, and one of the things he, he's saying here is, is God's Word, the, the, the Holy Scriptures, can show you how to get on the right path when you get off of that path, how to get back on it, and then ultimately how to stay on that path. A couple things before we launch too far into this, all Scripture, all Scripture. So Paul, again, talking to Tim, Timothy, what is this all Scripture's? which is what we would call the Old Testament, right? Those, those 39 books in the Old Testament would be the only Bible that these early Christians have. Now, what I'm not saying is uh, that the New Testament isn't also God-inspired. I'm just saying that, that when you read, it's important to understand who said it, who, who was he talking to at the time. Yes, it can cut through to it to us, but that, that, that's an important point uh, what's really cool about that point is what Paul's saying to Timothy is you've known this since you were a kid you you've committed this to memory and you have now that you've seen the resurrection of Jesus you have all that you need. Right, so, so, so the Old Testament changes when, when Jesus enters the scene. All of a sudden, all these things begin to clear up and make sense. Second thing we see is that it's God-breathed. I, I went into the class today, which, by the way, started a Bible class. If this starts to spur something into you, there's, there's room. I, I assume you can miss week one and show up in week two. Uh, Brooks did a great job teaching on this today. He called it dual authorship. All Scripture is God breathed, meaning it's a dual authorship. It's it's Holy Spirit working with the human author. So, what's important to understand about this this Bible, both the the early Christians' Bible, those thirty nine books, and ours, which is now sixty six, um, is that it's a library. Instead of it just being a holy book, it really is a holy set of, of a, a library. And it's got f- over 40 different authors written over 1,500 years on three different continents. Yet, yet it's got this story that weaves beautifully through the entire thing. But God uses that person and his, his personality to, to, uh, to work together to bring about this inspiration, which I think is, again, super cool for us because he wants to do a lot of that in and through us as well. I mean, if you just look at uh, in the Gospels, right? we got four Gospels. One of them is written by Mark. One of them is written by John. Two very different Gospels, right? Still telling the same story. I love it that their personalities shine through. You think about, you think about James, Jesus' brother, and then you think about Paul, right? James writes in a real blunt, staccato-type way, kind of Hemingway-esque, and, and then you've got more Shakespeare and Paul, right? These long, run-on sentences with 47 commas. But, he's, but, but, but those who study it uh, in its original language are like, this guy's a li- linguistic genius. So you got pretty simple Linguistic uh, genius, and and yet all through that, God uses to tell one story. So I think we get the inspiration, at least I'm going to assume, assume that we're there. But for it to be useful, as Paul says to Timothy, it requires interpretation. Requires interpretation. So sometimes you will hear people say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Right? Have you heard somebody say that? And by the way, if that's you, I'm not cracking here. I'm just saying that's cute. <laughs> Maybe a little naive. Well intended. But that oversimplification really doesn't help us much to settle things because this is a complex book and it does require interpretation. People will say, I just take the Bible as it is. No, no, they don't. No, they don't. This this is written in an ancient language that needed a translation, right? And then it requires some interpretation. And we all approach this with different biases, historical, cultural, political, theological, and that influences how we read it. And just to just to be honest about that is important. That we read this text through the right set of lenses. We're going to talk about that today. But when we do, when we put the right set of lenses on, it is good for teaching, for repute, reproof, which I think is a little better than rebuking. Rebuking sounds a little harsh. This correction and then training in righteousness. Last week, Jonathan talked a little bit about the rebuke side and uh, call it reproof or correction side. Um, When he talked about repentance, and it was fantastic. I know we say it a lot up here, but if you missed last week, I would highly encourage you to podcast it. I would highly encourage you to podcast it maybe alone in a car, right? Those of you that were here, I mean, it it will get to you and get through you and work some stuff out. And just like Ephesians 5, right? It's just the word of God moves through and lifts the impurities out. It's a beautiful thing. So he talked about that last week, so I'm going to focus a little more on teaching and training. So what does the Bible primarily teach? That's where we'll start, and then then we'll look at how, how do we read it, okay? So the Bible teaches primarily who God is, who we are, and why we exist. Any, any different teacher you'd put up here might have come up with three or four different things. But I think, for me, and I, I get the mic today, I think the Bible primarily teaches who God is, who we are, and, and why we exist. In the beginning, first few words of the, the Bible, in the beginning, God. And I think it's really important for us to understand this is first and foremost a library about God. So what that means then and how we approach it, is that it's not primarily about us, not primarily about me, it's not primarily about you. It's not even primarily about how do we get to heaven when we die? Some of that's in there. But this is first and foremost a divine revelation of who God is. I love Eugene Peterson if you've read his uh, paraphrase of the of the New Testament the message it's just fantastic. But he says this, God and his ways are not what most of us think. Most of what we are told about God and his ways by our friends on the street, or read about him in the papers, or view on television, or think up on our own is simply wrong. Maybe not dead wrong, but wrong enough to mess up the way we live. Pause there for a second. How many know that you can read the Bible in such a way that it could mess up the way that you live? he goes on to say in this book, the Bible is precisely a revelation, a revealing of what we could never figure out on our own. It's a gift. And the story that we believe about God matters deeply. A.W. Tozer, I'm pulling out the spiritual saints of our past, right? He says this, we tend by, this is why why it matters so much what we think about God. We tend by secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. Does that make sense? Try to flesh that out. Think about the ISIS terrorist. Right? He has a picture, he has a story that he tells himself about God, and that impacts very deeply what he does and how he lives. about the prosperity gospel preacher? right? Them too. They, they have a picture, a caricature of who God is, and, and they then live out this story based on the story that we believe, or that they believe. The Westboro Baptist picketer right, has a certain view of God and how he hates God some people and that it is up to them to tell those people that God hates them. About the singer at the Grammy, Grammys, who's thanking God for his hit single about a one-night stand. He's got a picture of who God is and ultimately it affects how he lives. With a nun who gives up any chance at a family. Fully devoting herself to the worship of God. Or the husband who takes care of his sick wife for decades till death do us part because of what his picture of God is. Or the businessman who makes a lot of money gives 90% of his wealth away because he has a certain picture of God. They do this. All of these people do this because of what they believe about God. So what we believe matters, and if that's true, the Bible must matter. There's so much bad thinking about God, and we hear it, but we can sort through the myths and the misconceptions about God because the Bible reveals who God actually is. Spoiler alert. What we believe and we say is that God, the Bible reveals, looks like Jesus. God has always looked like Jesus. There's never been a time where God has not looked like Jesus. We didn't always know that, but since his birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection, now, now we absolutely do. So, the Bible's first and foremost about God. Secondly, it's a bit about us. God created man and woman In his own image. It's easy to hear things that you've heard since you were little and just kind of dismiss that. Do you get that? God created us with the same essence of who he is. We can be like him because we were created like him. We can look like the Father, and we have a purpose. In the first few pages of, of the Bible, he didn't want us to miss it, and it's to mirror and reflect him to the rest of the world. That's big. You may know it, but it's probably worth writing down again that you were created in his image to mirror and reflect him to his creation. And when we really discover first who God is, then we get to discover who we are. The world wants to separate, divide. They, the world wants to label us, right? There's, there's no... Secret to that, because the enemy is behind the world, right? And his name is the divider. So there's no, no surprise. wants to put these labels on. You're conservative. You're liberal. You're suburban. You're urban. You're old. You're young. You're black. You're brown. You're white, right? Psst, tries to separate us. What the Bible does is it cuts through this and says, no, 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 no. This is who you are. You're created in his image and likeness. You are like God. And because of that, you have value and worth. Yes, you're bent out of shape a little bit right now. And corruption has gotten a hold of you. And that's going to take some intervention. And it's going to take some attention. But you are deeply loved by the God who created you. That's beautiful, right? So how do we read read this thing kind of properly? So Bible first tells us who God is, who we are. How do we approach it? I would say we must read the Bible as the real and true story of human history and to do so through the lens of Israel, which I think is important. So we said at the beginning, if you read this through the right lenses, really great things can happen. You put the wrong lenses on. And you can use the Bible to say just about anything you want negatively. But with the right set of lenses, we've got to realize that most of the Bible, if you look at it as a narrative, right? So it's not so much do's and don'ts, list of rules, commands. If you look at what it is the most of, it's mostly a narrative. It's mostly a story. And it's a story about one nation within the greater story of what God was doing throughout all creation, and we see that God creates Israel. It's his, his idea. He creates Israel out of nothing. To do something in them so that through them, he would be able to bless all of us. That's the story of God. That's the simple story of God, right? God wants to do something big. He wants to work with man. They kind of mess things up. He decides, oh, okay, we're going we're to create an, a nation, And through them, I'm going to bless everybody. That was his story. That was the story of God. That was was the story of Israel. But then they started telling themselves a different story. And you probably know this. If you start to tell yourself a different story, you start to live differently. And they started telling this story where they individually and then corporately as a nation became the main characters of the story. Right? And that God became the supporting cast helping them accomplish whatever it is that they wanted to do. Does that make sense? We, we shouldn't be too tough on them because we do the same thing. We, we start to tell ourselves a, a particular story and then our life gets off. Consider the atheists for a second. They have a story, right? The atheist has a story that they tell themselves. Who are we? We're evolved animals. Where did we come from? A glorious accident. What's the purpose of life? There is no purpose in life. Life doesn't have to have a meaning. Life, the meaning of life is whatever we make it. So eat, drink, and, and be merry, right? And that story that they tell themselves, that, that believer, because the atheist is a believer, right? The story that they tell themselves shapes how they live. All kinds of different stories. The left has a story. The right has a story. Americans have a story. And there are all kinds of subsets of those stories. But what the Bible is, the Bible is a subversive subversive story that upends all the other stories One of my favorite quotes, not just of the day, but one of my favorite quotes ever is Ivan Illich. He's an Australian theologian and philosopher. He says this, if you want to change a society, you have to tell an alternative story. If you want to change things in your family, if you want to change things on your team, in your business, you better tell a, a different story, a better story. And that's what the Bible does. It reveals a better story, a true story. If you want more information on this, a book called Why the Bible Matters, short read, good, easy read, but uh, it's by Mike Erie. He says, the Bible reveals the world as it really is. It is not primarily a theological textbook, a body of laws and regulations, or a collection of nice moral stories. It is a story that represents a different way of seeing the world and our lives in it. Amen. Leslie Newbegin was uh, was one of the early missionaries in India, and uh, had an incredible um, witness in India. Had a Hindu friend who said something to him, and he wrote it down in one of his books. Don't judge me; I misspelled his name. L e s s l i e, and then Newbegin is b e b i g i n. If you want to look him up later, okay. Moving along, he says this. This is his Hindu friend telling Leslie. I can't understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It's not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books on religion in India. We don't need any more. I find your Bible a unique interpretation of the universal history, the history of the whole creation and the history of the human race, and therefore a unique interpretation of the human person. As a responsible actor in history, that is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. He's right. He's right. And if you've ever read passages of the Quran or read the Book of Mormon in any way, there's just not the Bible with its issues. And it, it's got issues, it's, right? It stands alone. It is unique, and there is nothing in the world like it. It tells the story. tells the true human story of history through the lens of Israel. And it tells what God's plan of salvation is for Israel, and therefore for the rest of us and all of creation. So what is that? Well... It's to rescue humanity from futility and death. Futility. It's a word that just described cracked cisterns, cisterns, like cracked pottery. You pour into it, it's got a crack in it, and things just kind of fall out, right? causes emptiness. Salvation is to fill us up, to fill that empty void, right? And then ultimately to avoid death. And that futility and death came about as a result of humans. We can blame it on Adam and Eve if we want, or we could be wiser and look in the mirror because we, we've, we've all done it, right? We, we, we have, um, creation was first designed to work properly when humans, divine, reflecting, obedient humans, work collaboratively with God. That's how it was designed. And in so doing, we would do His will, and heaven and earth wouldn't look that much different. But as Paul says, creation must be rescued. Paul says creation must be rescued from the decay because of the the slavery that happened when human beings disobeyed. And so this rescue plan, through Jesus, then to humans, then to all creation. So God wants to rescue creation. He wants to do it through humans. But humans need first to be rescued. Why? Because humans failed to properly reflect God to the world. So forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. It's really at the heart of the new covenant. And the new covenant is at the heart of the restoration of all things, which is the time and period in which you and I live. So it's really easy for, for you and I to hear the word salvation and we think, oh my, I'm a sinner, I, I, I need forgiven, I, I need a savior, I need to be rescued so that I can go to heaven when I die. And we hear about the cross, right? And we hear about what Jesus did f- for us and we're like, great, yes, I want that. I would much rather spend my time up there than down there, give me that. And, and that's, a, that's a good start. It's a good start. at least gets you on the map. It gets you in the book, on, on, at least on one of the pages of the book. But what we've got to do is take our small little story, and you're going, wait a minute, you, you're talking about my little story about I, I, now, now not going there, but I'm going there? Yeah, we've got to take your small little story, my small little story, and look at the grand story that God is weaving together. And if we miss how our story fits into the larger story, we end up with this individualized escapist theology. Right? Where it's just about me getting out of this bad place so that I can go up there to the good place where everything's perfect. And I just want to say, when we do that, when we do that, that leaves the whole purpose of God and the whole purpose he has for us out of focus. So what's his purpose again? I'm gonna to try to rephrase it, but I know that I'm saying the same thing again because I, could, I did not want to miss it. And so you get to eavesdrop on what I'm telling myself. The purpose, the Bible teaches, is to rescue God's creation and God's people from futility, decay, and death. That's the purpose. This is Christianity 101. we got to get it. And death. Death is what happens when any image bearer fails to reflect God's image in the world and to the world appropriately. Sin. That's what it is. That's sin. It's missing the mark. Some of you know it's an archery term for, for missing the bullseye so so what is what is the mark the mark for us we got to know this you got to know what the win is the win the mark is genuine god image bearing humanness that 's it that 's what we 're shooting for genuine god image bearing humanness, and when we choose not to pursue that with all we 've got. We are inviting and ushering in futility and death. So salvation begins with rescuing humans, not again to go to heaven when we die, but rescuing humans to be image-bearing rescuers of God with God here, now. That's the purpose. That's why we exist. Because the Bible tells us so. Paul's Bible tells us so. The 39 books that made up Paul's Bible, it tells us this whole story. And Paul, man, he knew it forwards and backwards, but he didn't get it until the resurrection, until he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? And it's when he saw Jesus that he's going, it just totally changes the book of Isaiah, and all the prophets for that matter. But you think about Isaiah, uh, the servant's song, which is that poem between Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 55, and just just the latter part, how that how that poem concludes. We've got uh, Isaiah chapter 53. We love that chapter, right? It's where we read about the servant of the Lord who is both, in one sense, Israel, and yet on the other sense, stands against Israel. One who is first the arm of the Lord, but then he's a man. A man despised and rejected. A man weighted with grief. Wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Because forgiveness of sin through the death of the servant is at the heart of God's plan for salvation. That's, that's, That's Isaiah 53, right? And because of that... We move to Isaiah 54, which is where the covenant gets renewed, right? This new covenant is foreshadowed in 54. And guess what happens in 55? Does anybody remember? All creation gets renewed. If we could ever get that in 2023, what was written in Isaiah 53 through 54? 55. If we could understand that rhythm, that flow, right? Jesus comes to rescue humans. He starts a new covenant that we're living in, that we're walking in. And it is through that new covenant that all of creation and all humans in creation can also be renewed. It's a beautiful story. So the first thing that we've got to do, the first set of lenses that we've got to put on to read the Bible properly is, is to read, read the story in light of it being the true human story through the lens of Israel. And then the next part is, is, that's important. The next part's even more important because now we've got to put on the lenses of their Messiah, our Messiah, Jesus. Jesus. Ultimately, we must read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. We have to. Jesus is the ultimate and true lens of all Scripture. So, a challenge that I, I you don't have to keep it, but just for a day or a week, what I want you to do is when you hear the, 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 the phrase, Word of God, the first thing I want you to think about is Jesus. That's the first thing. I'm not saying don't think about the scripture, and that's not important, or or to refer to the scriptures of the Word of God is wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's secondary. When you hear Word of God, think first Jesus, and then Sacred uh, Scripture. So, so what we have is we've got the word that becomes flesh and dwells among us. And so what happened to him has got to be the central events that shape everything else that we read in Scripture, right? His birth, his life, his death, burial, and resurrection. And man, when, when you do this, I mean, things, things change and get better when you see it through these marquee set of lenses, when you see it through the lens of the crucified and risen Christ, we gain an entire new Bible, just like Paul did. Th- those 39 books changed forever because of Jesus. It's like this funnel, you know? The top of it is us, all the Old Testament just coming down into one, into the person of Jesus. And when we read the Bible, old and new, through Jesus... I'll tell you this, things get better. If you read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, the Bible gets better. Just one example, just one example, Hosea, right? Hosea is a 8th century BC prophet, right? So about 700 and so years before Jesus' birth is the time of Hosea, it's when he wrote this. And what else do we know about Hosea? What, what is he probably most famous for? Hosea married a prostitute, okay? Married a prostitute, right? And, and, and not like a repentant prostitute, like a working one. And, and what we see here is a real prophetic and poetic type of theater. Hosea is going to experience in his marriage what God experienced in adulterous and idolatrous Israel. And so what we're going to read, and we should expect to read, is we read tender expressions of love, and then we read these scathing threats of judgment. And so when you get to chapter 13 of of Hosea, Hosea is given this rebuke to the northern part of uh, the kingdom of Israel. And he says these words, because what they were doing at the time is they were worshiping the false gods of Baal. And so he's lighting them up, right? And thirteen, verse nine, he says, "He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me." Did you catch that? He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. And then he says some words that may sound a little familiar. He says, "O death, where are your plagues?" They're coming. O oh, Sheol, which is just another term for the grave or death, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. So if you ever encounter God, and He's not happy with you, and He says that compassion is hidden from His eyes, it's, that's a yikes moment, Right? And they could maybe, like I started at the beginning, maybe they felt a little beat up by God because of what they had heard from their ancestors about that text. But we know that that's not the end of that text, right? We know that about 700 years, this text is going to come back up in First Corinthians 15, right? Okay, so if if you were in Hosea, let's just... So, if you're in Hosea, we're going to flip over just a little bit towards 1 Corinthians 15, and then we're going to take, take a pause, okay, at Luke 24. It's, it's on the way. So, Luke 24, starting with verse 25. This is, this is the Emmaus Road, right? Then Jesus said to them, so this is that first Easter. Uh, just, some of the disciples or, or some of the people were walking away, and they're sad. Right? And Jesus said to them, You foolish people. How you read the Bible really matters. You foolish people. Or, oh man, <clears throat> silly, silly people. I think it's the latter. Your dull minds keep you from believing all that the prophets talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then he uh, interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures. Man, that's beautiful. Starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. When they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he was going ahead. But they urged him saying, stay with us. It's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. After he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it. And then he gave it to them. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But he disappeared. (laughs) They said to each other, Weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and he explained the scriptures to us? Man, when, when you read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, it just gets better. It just gets better. and we're going to see that. For, so let's go to 1 Corinthians 15 now. First Corinthians 15. am I there? Oh, this is a good this is a good quote. Let's, let's, let's stay here long enough for that. <laughs> before we get there. Brian Zahn says this. All scripture finds its fulfillment in Christ. If we don't see a particular text as Christ-like, by the way, pause, look up here for a second. You ever read some things that you're like, man, that, that, that does not sound like Jesus. I don't know what to do with it. Okay, Brian's got some advice for us. We should have very little to say about it. If we read something that doesn't look like Jesus, I'm not saying throw it out. I'm just saying let's, let's not say a whole bunch about it, right? Actually, Brian's saying it. I just happen to agree with him. Either we find a way to conform the scriptural text to Christ or we leave it alone until we can. I love Brad Bandy. Okay, now 1 Corinthians 15. Says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Does this sound familiar? Death. Has swallowed up in been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death or shield, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're really not going to clap for that. When you read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, it always gets better. See, we thought, the nation of Israel thought, that this was just bad news, all bad. But we've got the full story now so we can read it correctly. And what appeared in Hosea to be God saying, I will destroy you, O Israel, who can help you, now becomes, I will destroy you, O death, how can I help you? That's different. It's different. When you read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, it always gets better. So that's just one example we could give a whole bunch. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that it appears... that, I don't know if he uses the word appears, that the scriptures are veiled. His scriptures, the 39 books of the Old Testament, are, are veiled. You can kind of see some things through it, but it's, it's not real clear. But at the resurrection, veil gets torn in half. And now all of a sudden, we can see the scripture for, for what it really is. And the primary, the primary purpose of the scripture is to point to Jesus. And it does that inerrantly. The primary thing isn't to tell us how the cosmos was formed, how many days it took, or who's in and who's out. The primary purpose of the Bible is to point to Jesus. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think uh, they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. We're not to worship the scriptures. We're we're to read and to soak in the scriptures and worship the God of the scriptures. Make sense? And the whole scriptures, the whole of the scripture, is to find Jesus. And once we find Jesus, the scripture scripture then helps us to become like Jesus. To be formed into the image of Jesus. So that we can then participate with him in the restoration of his creation. No slide for this one. This is late ad. But this is Joel Joel Green who says this, we read so the scriptures will shape us to be more and more like Christ. Not so that we can check off a list. Spiritual formation is not measured by how much we know about the Bible or how often we read the Bible, which ought to be often. But by the way we follow Jesus. This is the bottom line. We can be familiar with much of the Bible and still not love or follow Jesus. You know, that's true. In reading the Bible, we are to be- become a particular kind of person, a kind of person that looks like Jesus. It is possible to read the Bible, even read the Bible often, and still be a jerk. It's possible to read, memorize the Bible, and still be mean. Which is bizarre. Because we are not to just be Bible-believing. We are to be Bible-living. The Bible, say it another way, is not just to be believed. It is to be lived. Why? So that we can be thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped to do every good work. Into right, about ready to land the plains. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The Bible isn't simply a repository of true information about God, Jesus, and the hope of the world. It is rather part of the means by which, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the living God rescues his people and his world and takes them forward on a journey toward his new creation and makes us agents of that creation even as we travel. Amen? That's why we read. That's why we read. It's not to feel better about ourselves or to think we're spiritually elite. It's so that we can join this story, this grand story that God has been up to for a long time and ask us to be bit players in. Because God is at work through the the scriptures to shape this new covenant community right here in Oklahoma City of men, women, and children into the image of Jesus so that we can participate in what God is up to Right here in our city, in our workplace, in our homes, in our state, in our country, and in, in the whole world. He's up to something. And he says, I want you to be a part. And reading the scripture helps do that. Willard, Dallas Willard says it this way, we come to the scripture as a part of a conscious strategy to cooperate with God for the full redemption of our life. That's why we approach the scripture. We want it all Transformed. We want to look just like Jesus. Every corner and crevice, every dark closet in our heart, we want Him to shine a light so that we can ultimately look like Jesus. And my question, based on this quote if reading the scripture is not your strategy, what is? What's your strategy? Because the world is trying to squeeze you into its mold. And its inertia is going to make you a certain kind of person. If reading the scripture isn't your strategy, how do you fight that? But God gives us his word. First, Jesus. Second is sacred scripture. You want to look more like Jesus? Renew your commitment. Commitment his sacred text and let it point you to Jesus. Let's stand. And as we stand, the band can come back up. I just felt like, like it would be important for us to, in one voice, declare what we believe. You staying with me? I want us to declare as a body, as a family of Jesus followers, to be reminded to renew to this commitment of what we believe So would you join me in the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen.